are listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. In this series, Ivy Entrepreneur and Ivy faculty member Eric Jansen will anchor the session. You quit your dream job to launch a company in an industry that you have no experience in. You work the hardest you've ever worked in your life to source the product, build the brand, and launch the website. And guess what? You actually get sales rolling in on day one. But then, of course you do. They're all from your family and friends. And then day two comes around and... Crickets. This is how Cotton started. Cotton's founder, Rami Halali, worked in the finance industry and was crushing it, but knew his true calling was to be an entrepreneur. This podcast is his story of starting a renowned fashion brand, selling Egyptian cotton teas, and partnering with family-owned farms and charities in Egypt to do it ethically. Cotton has since grown exponentially and opened flagship stores in Toronto and Queen West, and in Manhattan in the heart of Soho. Rami shares the story of how he left his job with no formal plan, for how to start the business, how to quit the right way, how to hire your first employees, and even the exact email word for word that he used to get covered by top media outlets like Forbes, Vogue, The New York Times, The Huffington Post, and GQ. This story of hustle, learning, and growth is inspiring for any entrepreneur, whether you're just starting out and need some motivation or trying to break through that next level of growth. Enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Rami Halali, the co-founder of Cotton. I'm here with Rami Halali from Cotton and Rami. It's good to finally have you back. Yeah, good to be here. Excited to have you. So for those that may not be as familiar with Cotton, I thought it would be helpful if we start off with what is it that you do? Yeah, so uh, Cotton is a direct-to-consumer apparel company. We started online a little over three years ago now. We started with a simple idea that uh, we felt that the everyday essentials, kind of the things that we come in contact with in our wardrobe every day, the t-shirts, the underwear, the kind of repeat items, you either had to go designer and pay a lot of money and and sometimes the ethics matched, uh, or you had to go kind of H&M and kind of throw away clothing. So we just sensed that there was a gap there in the market that needed to be addressed. So we started online with uh, a couple of these products. And since then, we've grown to have four retail locations across Canada and the US. And, uh, you know, still the majority of our business is online. And and we've been very fortunate to kind of grow in that way. But a big part of what we do is actually how we source it. We are completely transparent, ethical supply chain from the second the cotton leaves the ground till the final uh, product. We actually work directly with the farms, smallholder farms in the Nile Delta in Egypt. Everything we make is made out of Egyptian cotton. We provide direct subsidies and guaranteed prices and kind of uh, work our way through the supply chain with ethical facilities until we have the the final garment. We kind of call it like mid-market price, luxury at a mid-market price. Awesome. You've done a, a really good job of telling the story of cotton. I mean, it when you look at it on the surface, I remember when you first launched the company, you're thinking... T-shirt yeah. company. How do you, yeah. how many do we need? How do you yeah. differentiate that? But the the story and what you actually stand for as a company is a huge differentiator. Yeah, I mean, I think. Listen, one of the biggest differentiators for us, I think that the way we approached solving this problem, we are a product of our current generation. I think, and and to us, it inherently meant that it needed to be what people call ethical, but for us, it was kind of the default. So my background's Egyptian. So I kind of quit my job in New York and and spent six months in Egypt, four of those months I was living with the farms to kind of understand what their struggle was and all that type of thing. And, and I really think that kind of 
time spent and that effort spent, I think customers really appreciate the authenticity of our story. The other thing is we have a brilliant and incredible, I mean, my, my, one of my co-founders is an incredibly brilliant creative and, and has a really great way of telling that story. And, and her entire creative team has been really great at that. But I think the core of it of kind of like it being true and it being, uh, I actually think that we kind of understate what we do, but it is part of the DNA of the company. And I think that's what people are gra- gravitate towards and kind of are interested in and, and, and a part of the story's success. Cool. So part of what we like to do on these podcasts is get into some of the details here. Yeah. So you, you know, graze over, I left my job and we started yeah. this company and went and lived on the farms for four months <laughs> uh, or six months. So yeah. how, talk me through what you were doing before and yeah. how did you get this to a point where you were comfortable actually leaving your job to start this thing? So we had nothing done when I left my job. So we didn't, we didn't get it to any point. No business plan. Really honestly, like kind of just, uh, looking back now, quite a naive idea. So I don't know if I'd recommend that for everyone listening, but it worked out for us and it it was kind of our story and I'm very thankful that it worked out that way. But so so what did you have in the beginning when you first left? What was Honestly, like Ben, my co-founder called me and said, Hey, you know, like how t-shirts are either really expensive and unaccessible or kind of like, like not made well and, and, and with shoddy ethics. And I was like, yeah, this seems like enough to quit my job for and, and did that. And looking back now, I, I, I really objectively see how, how little that is, but maybe reflecting now, what I did have is a trust in us as a team's ability and a conviction that I think my gut told us that kind of the, the way things are made isn't okay and can't be the way things are made in the future in terms of the ethics and, and the impact on the environment. I think our gut said it, even if we, at the time, if you'd asked me, I probably couldn't have uh, put it in words. I think our gut told us that there was a an opportunity to do something different and kind of innovate on a supply chain and the transparency and kind of ethics there and the way that our business model kind of gives back without us having to kind of have a CSR team or whatever it may be. And at the same time, again, it was a trust in our, my own ability and my partner's ability and, and kind of that thing. So when you, how did that conversation go? Cause you had been working mm-hmm. in your previous role for Almost how long? Five years, four and a bit years. Four yeah. and a bit years. Yeah. So you were in good role, kind of you a mix of, you said private equity and entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. So really cool role. Yeah. Um, your friend calls you with an idea <laughs> and you at the drop of a hat decide you want to be an entrepreneur? Listen, I always knew that I want to start my own business. It was always a thing. I mean, when I was here at Ivy, I, I, I took as many of those courses as possible. And, and, and I always, you know, like one of my co-founders, Ben and I always just kind of bounced ideas off of each other and they're all terrible. Like looking back now, you know, like I remember one of us, Mackenzie, our third co-founder and Ben's wife, like makes fun of us. Like we were like, Oh, we're going to start like an online laundry business. Like you go like whatever you drop it off and like it exists now, but like, do I want to be doing laundry my whole life? Like probably not. So I always knew I want to start my own business. I think for a while in kind of like my gut, something was boiling that like, Hey, this is a dream job. It really was like, I had a CEO at the that the company I worked at, that was like, she's one of the most inspirational kind of people that I've been around. She was like so smart and so direct. And I respected how she conducted herself. And she really like, it felt like took me under her wing and kind of really taught me. And like, I had a path to, I think a lot of success and I was having a lot of success at a young age at the company, but just my gut told me like, you're going to get comfortable. And like, this feels nice. And like, likely at a certain point, you're, it's going to feel too nice to kind of give it up. So for a while, it kind of was like in my gut that, you know, t- the time might be coming if I was going to do it. 
And it just happened to be that that was the idea maybe that was uh, kind of thrown out there during that period. The one thing I will say though is like, I've always known that like the opportunity I was afforded because my parents coming over here and immigrating here as, you know, and all that kind of thing. I always knew that like, I wanted to take the things that I've learned, whether at Ivy or in, you know, kind of my community here and, and do what I can to help in where my heritage is from. So I always also had that, but you know, this surprisingly in kind of fashion or retail was the way to kind of bridge all those different things. But it, it's funny how life shakes out. I mean... It's interesting. I couldn't have kind of written this out um, previously. So we're spending a lot of time on the quitting part, but because people care about the details, how did that quit conversation go? I think I've had people quit on me. Uh, We've had to terminate people. There's, There's a good way and a bad way to do it. So how did you do it? And did you do it the right way? I, I, I'm not sure. I think again, I'd give a bias answer. I'm sure. But looking back now, I, remember feeling sick to my stomach for about a month before kind of like I was making that decision kind of I was leaning more and more towards like it happening I think they had a lot of trust in me and as kind of someone at a company now that has team members I have a few people you know like I I get it like if they left it would feel like almost a betrayal I don't know if they felt that way. I can't speak for them. I told them I'd work for as long as they needed me to. I kind of gave them that option. I talked through it. I didn't end up working that long. Like they, you know, the transition happened relatively quickly. I remember like not sleeping for a couple of days before having to do it. I remember like relative, like I'm, I'm fortunate to not have to like, I don't get nervous in those situations. But I, I remember being extremely nervous because I felt like I was letting down kind of like a, an older sister, an older brother, or like kind of a parent figure or whatever it may be. And, you know, I still, I catch up with them every once in a while, both the CEO, CEO and COO of that company. And, you know, not as much, you know, in the last year probably as it has, but right after, I mean, we still talked for quite a bit. Cool. That's yeah. Helpful to know. I think the details matter. So you, it, easy part to glaze over the yeah. story. I had this job and I quit and we moved no, on. No. And-, and the other thing I want to add here is like, I, in my head was like, if this doesn't work, I'll go travel it. And like, I remember going to Egypt and not knowing how long I was going to stay. And I had a family wedding at the time and, and, and that kind of thing. And I remember going like, actually a friend of mine had booked me and a friend of mine who was an Ivy classmate of mine had booked six months in South America And I was like, okay, maybe when I'm back, I'll do this. And within a week, it just kind of like the hooks were in. And I just called him and I was like, dude, sorry, I'm not coming on this trip. And he's like, so I'm going away for six months by myself. I'm like, I guess, I guess so. I'm sorry. And I never got a refund for that trip to Argentina, actually. Oh man. So you, (laughs) so you gave up that trip in order to start. Yeah. Yeah. It was like all like, it wasn't like a, I need to do this. I quit my job and it's like this romantic thing. It really wasn't like, that's a lot messier than that. You know, like I think human emotion and how we are wired as a species a lot less clear cut than that. I mean, you know, there's, there's so many considerations when you're making these decisions. So, I mean, I, I would say to my like self and I try to remind myself all the time, it's like, you know, like when you zoom out, it all looks like, Oh, this happened. And then this happened. And obviously it worked. Look at all those things that happened. But when you're in it, it's very often not that clear. And, 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 you know, it just happened, you know, and it, 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 sticking to it and kind of like having that belief is kind of the reason I think why it happened. Cool. That's helpful. So, so shifting gears. So now you, you quit your job, you're in Egypt. (laughs) If you can go into the details, what did you do to start it? Because often there's this big, big intimidating, what do I do next? How do I prioritize? Like, how did you figure out what needed to get done next? Yeah. So 
it's really funny actually i i remember thinking in my head and now it's kind of funny but i remember thinking in my head I was like how do you ship a thing like how do you generate a label like i remember that being a question like how do you create a label like on a for on a commercial level and like stick them on packages and how does that info happen do i have to enter it man like i remember that being a sticking point for whatever reason in my head like looking back now that's like a two second thing but anyways i spent four months of those six months on the ground with the farms what i did there is like literally i didn't really know i, I knew no farmers i knew no one who owned a farm i literally drove it's about a three and a half hour drive from cairo into this first place where we started in the nile delta it's kind of like where the nile splits into two in the north of the country and it creds like this incredibly fertile delta which is where 100 of egyptian cotton is grown and it's it's kind of like how cognac can only come from cognac or champagne from champagne it's like the salinity in the air mixed with the fertility of the soil because of the nutrients that come from central africa through the nile create this place where like the best cotton in the world can be grown and I was like, I think it, I've heard of Egyptian cotton. Let's go figure out what this is. Um, and I literally like, this isn't an exaggeration, like parked the car, walked onto a farm, like, hey, who owns this place? And like, I'd get like weird looks and like get off my property and that kind of thing until like after doing this a few times, someone was like, oh, come and I'll talk to you and talk me through kind of their experience. And that person introduced me to one more person and that kind of thing. There's no like easy way to do these things from my experience. It's just like, it's kind of just hard and you just kind of have to do it and just kind of like, most of the days are kind of bad and you know there's like that good day that gives you that energy that you felt like at the beginning that like you know makes you withstand the next 20 30 bad days and then you know another good day so yeah i went to the farms understood kind of their struggle and then from there i was like i guess what comes after the cotton i guess yarn so i went and like linkedin like who owns yarn companies no one on my linkedin owned yarn companies surprise uh, yeah. yeah ask one person who introduced me to another person who are like you know 40 terrible meetings and then you meet one kind of like person you're like oh i feel like this person's honest and is going to provide good quality and then you do a little sample and whatever and then from yarn i went to fabric same thing and then cut and sew same thing and all of this i'm trying to convince them to do like 200 t-shirts which is like that's like sample room stuff. Like they, it's like you're asking me to do all this ethical stuff like that I've never heard about and it's 200 t-shirts. So that was a real big thing. I remember, <laughs> I remember taking a weekend. My parents at the time lived or live in Dubai. So like I went over there and I was like, this really isn't working, blah, blah, blah. And my dad was like, Hey, listen, like I'm having lunch with some friends. I'd love to introduce you. And you know how parents like just proud of their kids and whatever. And I remember thinking in my head, I'm like, oh, I really don't want to go. And I was like, Ugh, whatever, I'll just go. And at that lunch, and I don't know whatever you call this, but after trying for like months to find a manufacturer, like a cut and sew, one of his new friends, he had just moved there. He was like, oh, I heard you're doing this. Like a family friend of mine owns a factory. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, oh, this is another one of those things. I call the person, the person's like, hey, I'm actually coming to Dubai in a day. I'll bring you all the samples you want and I'll do it exactly how you want. And that's how kind of we found the final and kind of one of the more important pieces of that puzzle. Wow. A mix of, what do you call it? Luck meets opportunity yeah, or yeah, grace, yeah, whatever exactly. it is. Nice. Exactly. So early days, you're getting your butt kicked. You know, is this going to work? Is this idea bad? Am yeah, I bad? Like yeah, all those thoughts. Yeah. How did you push through that? Like, did you have a, when you started, did you have a vision for what you wanted it to be? Like, did you have a, an idea of what, once you got on the other side of it, what yeah. to look forward to? How did you? <laughs> I always like, I think we have this habit of going like, if I just get there, everything's going to be amazing. And then you get there like, no, it's just, it's hard, but it's different kind of hard. Right. So I think the thing that I've learned is like, man, I'm so like, I feel so fortunate to have the problems that we have. Like I tell, I say this to our team all the time. Like 
we get to wake up and solve really hard problems. They're really difficult, but like, that's really exciting. Like, would you rather just be going to do the same thing over and over again every day? Some people do, and that's fine. That's really great. Like, and I don't mean that in a condescending way, but like, we all understand what makes us tick and like myself and the people on the team and my partners, like, I know what makes us tick is like, this is really hard. And it's like basically impossible. Uh, let's take a shot, you know, like, and that's kind of the mentality. So to answer your question, do I, there wasn't like a thing like I, I, or a status where I thought like if we got there, like everything would be fine. But I did have a vision that like, I think that we can have profound impact on the ground to these people who I felt like were let down by the system. And I don't need to get into politics, but whatever it may be, didn't have opportunity. You had a really high illiteracy rate in the area. You had like a lot more girls than boys that were illiterate and, and, you know, going around around like my mother and sister, incredibly brilliant women and motivated and driven and ambitious and have, you know, taught me so much. And seeing that as like, Oh, that literally could have been me a generation ago was a strong motivator. I think all of us at cotton, um, the entire team, like that's kind of the thing that keeps us going when it gets bad. Like you go visit these schools and you're like, you know, some of these girls, like we prioritize two to one in the schools that we build girls to boys. And some of these girls, like literally I met a year ago when we opened the school, didn't, could not read a word. And like, we were there a month ago and I was like, they're doing like multiplication on the board. And I had to kind of like think about some of the problems and they were going so quick. And I was like, Oh damn, like this is a thing. Like, so that, you know, that, that helps a lot. So, so now you mentioned the schools and yeah. just to be explicit. So now you are a part of, uh, educating the yeah. youth in that region. So yeah. maybe share a little bit about some of those goals. Yeah. So we, what we do is like, we have complete transparency and ethics in our supply chain with every single one of the partners we work with. Right. And we make sure of that and hold ourselves accountable by having third party people audit us. Like we don't even take our own word for it. Like we make sure that other people who are experts come in and make sure that we are doing what we say we're doing. Right. And that's really important. And we give back to these farmers through subsidies and guaranteed prices, right? We say to them, okay, we're gonna, at the end of the season, buy it at this much, so you have a guaranteed revenue, and we're gonna decrease your expenses by providing whatever, agricultural consultants, uh, fertilizer, whatever it may be. So that all goes into our COGS. I mean, I don't think most people put that into their cost of goods sold, but we bake that into our actual margins. Over and above that, for us, our belief is for us to, a exists and have an ecosystem in which people are thriving and businesses are thriving and, and people are treated with respect. We need to invest now in something that's going to create change in the next generation, the one after that. And through the work with the communities, we understood pretty quickly that like a lack of education is a really big problem. Access to early kind of elementary school and early education is a problem. You know, sometimes the closest school is eight kilometers away, no car, the kids have to walk. It's a two, three hour dangerous walk. So we determined, okay, this is what we're doing now. And we're gonna start building these community schools in the places in which we source our cotton. And, and we think of it as not like, oh, pat us on the back, we're doing such a great thing, but for us to really have anything left probably in a hundred years. Um, I think these are the types of investments that we need to be making as private businesses and not just NGOs and whatever government agencies and whatever they may be. So how does that investment that you make, you mm -hmm. said the investment in the schools is part of COGS? No. So no. the subsidies of the farms and the guaranteed prices part of the COGS. Outside of all of that, 2% of our revenue minimum is goes to these programs. Got it. So you decided 2%, your business model is included minimum, that 2% of your revenue goes directly to those programs. Minimum. And we haven't, 
we haven't even gotten close. It's often been more than that. You know, we've we we work with an NGO there that helps us like we fund the build, the capex, and the operational expenses. So everything, the teacher salaries, all that kind of thing. But then there's an NGO that like specializes with education to run the schools and train the teachers and that kind of thing. So we work and we work on needs assessments of the community and we prioritize which community needs it and like we prioritize like there's a lot of work that goes into that. But that all comes from that two percent. Um, we're a B Corp. Which you B Corp know, is that like one of those not yeah, only for profit businesses? Yeah, that, yeah, it's like it's called a benefit corporation, like benefit for all that. And it's like we're actually quite a rigorous audit process to get a B Corp. Patagonia is like the f- most famous B Corp and all that. That was more like, uh, you know, those things are good for consumers who don't want to spend the time researching. That kind of stamp means that someone else has done the research, they've done the work, they've audited, they know that this is true. So that provides that, which has been really helpful for us. But um, yeah, we kind of, honestly, we hold ourselves to a pretty high standard on that front. It's really what motivates me and 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 I think the whole team. Cool. So you've gone, you've come quite a long way. You launched the business when? 20? Yeah, almost four years ago now. Okay, so We're in 2014? our fourth year. Yeah, 15, 16. Wow. Okay, yeah. so, so new, 2014, 15, 16. Yeah. You went from strictly on line to mm-hmm. you said how many physical retail so we just there? we just finished up our one year in soho in new york and we're moving that to brooklyn now but right now we have toronto vancouver and montreal and probably another five coming in the next 18 months awesome so uh, i've picked up a few things that you mm-hmm. do really well as a mm-hmm. brand if you just search cotton k-o-t-n yeah, yeah. you've done a phenomenal job of storytelling and of press coverage mm-hmm. so how did you get, like, where did that start? How did you first start to get coverage for cotton? <laughs> we were talking about this earlier, but I remember we launched and we like posted on, I posted on my Facebook, my co-founders did the same, like go by and like my mom and dad bought and my uncles and Ben's mom and Mackenzie's mom and everyone bought and it was all great. And like, oh, did 6,000 the first day. I'm like, oh, it's only up from here. And the next day I was like two and like third day I was like, couple hundred bucks and then third fourth fifth sixth day was just zero dollars like no one is googling and at the time it was kotn.co like no one's googling that and like no one knows what that is and i was like oh so what now and i remember having like a moment of panic like i don't even know what to do like what comes next and i kind of like broke it down i'm like okay well i need more people to know about this and the people who are gatekeepers to those people are press so how do i get press and then i googled and i found a list that had like i don't know a thousand five hundred editors or something like that or journalists from like every walk of life like every type of publication and it was like 15 bucks or something like that and i like buy that and i sent an individual email it was not a blast i remember because it said like whatever it was the same uh subject line and then I tailored each one and it's like, I really enjoyed this article that you wrote and it showed that I like actually thought about it a little bit and I did 1,500 of those and I still have it in my scent and I go back to those every once in a while when I'm having a bad day and being like, at least you don't have to send 1,500 press emails today. And I remember, I think I got six or seven responses and the first thing that wrote about it or publication that wrote about it was a thing called Mike Shouts. I don't know if it still exists. Thanks, uh, Mike. Yeah, thanks for, for the shout out, Mike. And then I did a follow up to every, whatever, 1,494 that hadn't responded. And then I got like a couple more and I think one of the first ones was maybe ink or you know what was high snobiety at the time i can't really remember but it was one of those and then that got another one and that was the early days and i literally just like honestly to the to, to probably an annoying point was like harassing these editors like i wouldn't recommend doing that but it worked on a few of them and i remember TechCrunch, and i won't mention the editor's name because he'd probably still around but i remember said like hey the article goes out tomorrow and i remember being like oh my god like at the time TechCrunch was like the thing everyone read right 
I was like, oh my God, we're about to be so rich, right? And then the next day it comes and he didn't post it. And then I email, he's like, yeah, yeah, sorry, just got caught up. Article's already written, hitting publish today at 3 p.m. Again, nothing. And he, the guy just disappeared and never wrote the article. So I remember like those were such insane highs and lows, but that was how it was done at the beginning. And then eventually we hired a PR agency that's like really, really great in the US and, and does this. But I think you can't like have a bad product with no story and no need for that product and expect coverage. I think you either not need to innovate with like the type of product or service, or you have to differentiate if it's a space that is already quite you know busy you have to have a differentiation and a reason for these people to speak about it and stepping in the editor or the journalist's shoes is really has been effective for me and all of us i think as a team as we think about like why would they talk about this like it's a bunch of new colors like do you want to read about that i don't really want to read about that okay so the, the product is a bunch of new colors right you know they don't care how hard it was to get those colors like they're not in that but Actually, like, I mean, this, we can speak to like this upcoming, we're releasing like kind of like chinos and woven pants. And that's a huge product release for us. And I was like, does anyone care that there's more chinos? Probably not. And then we thought about it and we're like, oh, but what we are one of one probably in the world is like, I can tell you where each individual fiber came from and every single person that touched it and what condition they live in and how much they make. And is that enough? And how we're helping? Like we have complete transparency to the actual natural material, which I think is, is very unique. And that's what the rhetoric's going to be about. And I mean, we'll see how much press we get about it, but historically that's, you know, a compelling story to, to, to kind of tell. So that's, uh, these are simple lessons, but not easy to grasp fully, but like if you want to get coverage, have something worth covering. Yeah. Um, and do and, the work for them. And do the work. Yeah. A lot of these uh, news outlets, especially local news, are gutted. There's very yeah. few people left. And yeah. if you can make their work easy, have something worth writing about and make it copy paste if possible, yes. you have a higher likelihood. To get I, I literally have like an early press release that I attached to that email. And I think like the first five articles were literally that release. Like, and it was a bad press release. Like looking back now, like that was bad. And I was like, oh man, these huge publications like really basically ran this. I mean, they put in their own flair. Each journalist, you know, they put in their like, you know, lens or whatever it may be. But the heart of it, the content, the hard part is done for them, right? Yeah, make it easy. Yeah. Would you mind sharing what that email subject line was? Yeah, like, I have it here somewhere. Because um, that's a big, there's a, the book on advertising by Ogilvy talks about if you don't sell it in your headline, then you've basically wasted your money. So 90% of people will read the headline. Uh, sorry, 90% of people only read the headline and will not read the body copy. So when it comes to email subjects, let's assume the same ratio that nine out of 10 people are never going to read the body unless the, co unless the, yeah, so I got made. it here. This looks like it went to the senior producer at CTV. I guess they were on the list and the, uh, subject of the email is I quit my job in New York and lived on cotton farms in Egypt all for the perfect tea. And that's the story. Yeah. I remember thinking like, if I got that email, I'd be like, what is this about? You know, I'm at like, least going to skim it. Yeah, exactly. And then right away I just said, acknowledge that they're busy. Like, Hey, I'll keep this brief. Cause I know you're super busy and you get lots of these. Our story includes three New Yorkers all originally from Toronto quitting their jobs and a six month journey to Egypt, living on cotton farms and factories all to create the perfect t-shirt and save the Egyptian cotton industry from extinction. That's a story though. You know? Yeah. Like, and yeah, I, I guess I, early on, I, the instinct said like, 
would I open this email was the question I would ask myself. And I'm sure this is version five. I'm sure I've sent a few. And I remember downloading like uh, one of those things where you could see if they open the email or not. And like using that as like, a, oh, these are getting open more. I should use this. And I didn't know at the time that was called AB testing and all the startup jargon. But I remember just inherently understanding like, oh, like just pit them against each other and see which one wins. Cool. So you've been covered in Vogue, Forbes, Globe and Mail, New York Times, Huffington Post, GQ, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of local stuff, Blog.to. Mm -hmm. How much of that, how many of those came from just you rolling up your sleeves? Our biggest revenue generator from press to this day is a GQ article I got month three. And it's the articles titled these are like the white, t these are the best white t-shirts or like white t-shirt GQ staffers swear by or something like that. So every time people Google best white tee, that comes up right at the top. And we're like the second one in that article. And that I actually remember very, very specifically how that happened. I, the journalist was at, I want to say Inc. And when I emailed him the first blast, he was like, Hey, I'm actually leaving next week and moving to GQ. Like this actually might be a really great thing. I was like, hey, can I send you a sample right away? I respond like within two seconds. He's like, yeah, sure, here's my address. And I sent it. And I guess this guy moved before it got to him. And like three months later, this guy went back because he figured that there might be packages waiting for him at his old building. And this was one of them. And he opened it. He's like, oh my God, this thing emailed me. I was like, hey, like there's a GQ thing coming out tomorrow. And I remember just seeing like our revenue just like really, really go. I don't know how much we've made off that article, like that specific mention, but it's like, it could be six figures. Like, I don't know, but it's, it's one of our top refers. And this is like four years in. And this is from old school. Yeah, this was sleeves. like three months in, yeah. like just blasting and kind of like going back and circling back and like trying to be like empathetic and saying like, I know I'm being annoying. Like I am really sorry. And like, but like, I really care about this. And this is something that's like really important. Sorry, like, not sorry. Yeah. That kind of thing. Do the nice yeah. Canadian. We're always. <laughs> yeah. So you've had some pretty notable successes. I mean, you've got four retail locations, mm -hmm. the online business is taking off. There's a other project that you folks are working on in a different space. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, what have your keys to success been so far? It's tough to boil it down, but if, is there anything that like you can say, these few things we did really well? I think we're really quick learners. I think like the team like that we've put together is like super quick. Like we'll make a mistake, but we won't make it again. And like, we're quite good at that at pinpointing what went wrong and making sure that's ingrained in all of us that that mistake can't happen again. That's one thing. The other thing is like, honestly, and, and I, I don't know if this sounds cheesy, I can't tell, but like the team that we have is the reason for the company's success. And, and I mean that in the founding team, but also like the first kind of like five to 10 employees, like honestly, I, they all treat the company like owners cause they are. And you know, like I, I just feel incredibly fortunate to have like these driven, motivated, much smarter than I am people kind of all working towards the same thing. So find those people early on. And um, our very first employee applied for an internship. And I remember glancing over the resume and saying, no, this won't work and kind of like passing it off. And my co-founder looked at it and was while I was away in Egypt, hired her. And to this day, she's like, she was employee number one. And to this day, you know, um, a huge, huge part of our success. And, and same thing with our first creative hire, same thing with like, I, the list goes on. So find those people be like for us, key success was learning quickly. And then I think just generally, you just got to stick with it. It's just hard. Like it just is hard. And like, 
we kept thinking like, this is the silver bullet. We just turn this corner and then like all of a sudden, like the millions come in with no additional effort and this is it. Like your problems just change. Like the current challenge just goes from like, okay, I used to literally, there used to be a storage locker where we like had the t-shirts and I'd go from my house. Like it was kind of depressing to be honest some days, like just with a backpack and it's like raining and I just like put like two t-shirts that were ordered in the backpack and go and like mail them. And you know, like that can be depressing. And like, I still kind of remember how the storage locker smelled like that sticks out in my mind, but you know, that seemed like the hardest thing ever. And then now like we have teams across multiple countries, continents, cities, and like managing that and like realizing that like, no, like they entrust you to help lead and help kind of guide the course and, and, and that trust is like, it's kind of scary. Like to be completely frank, like some days, you know, things might not be going well or like the bank account might be looking a little light and whatever it may be. And fundraising is going a little difficult. And you're like, man, I really hope I'm never put in that position where I like feel like you've failed those people. So just knowing that it's going to be hard. And I wish like I could go back and just be like, it's always going to be kind of difficult one way or another and just getting better at, at kind of, reacting or not reacting often to these things really is the kind of a key success thing. It's like, if you can just get better, like at, you know, you put in the work, you can try to mitigate the risks. You can try to do all these things, but things happen in the way that they happen. And it's your job to react and, and look at it and be able to zoom out and go, okay, what does this mean for us? And, and that kind of thing. I mean, fortunately we haven't had to kind of call it quits or anything like that, but just the ability to, to kind of reflect and, and, and kind of the interpersonal growth. Cool. How do you find those people? So no doubt you need to find great people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who have had some measure of success are saying it's, it's the team. They're yeah. quick to give credit to the team. How did instead of generally, how can you, how did you, how did you find those people? I don't know. I honestly don't have an answer for that. I think about this because we're at the point now we're hiring more and more people. I'm like, how do I make this a repeatable process? I guess this is where I've, this is where I'm at now in this journey for that answer. I think doing things in the way that you want to be, want it to be done will attract the same kind of people. So if you are doing things terribly and not being honest and all those types of things, you're probably going to attract those types of people. And on the other hand, if, if it's truly what you care about and it's, it's baked in the DNA of the company. And I think people can sense that. I think we have attracted those types of people. So yeah, we put out job postings and those types of things and, you know, university websites for recent grads or, you know, a little more active recruiting for non-recent, like more senior positions and, and that kind of thing. But I don't know that we figured it out perfectly. I think we, my co-founder Ben's quite good at the interview process, like setting a process that kind of like weeds out and you get the right people that have the right attitude and aptitude. And then it becomes kind of like a gut thing and kind of asking the right questions. I mean, in my roles, CEO, I, I kind of come in if it's not directly under one of my teams, like I'll come in at the end. And when there's a couple candidates and kind of have just a conversation, often not about anything technical. I've had, you know, I have an instinct where I feel comfortable and I see like, oh, this, this person I think is aligned in values and aligned in kind of what their North star is. And that's kind of what we look for. Cool. Something I haven't tried yet, but since uh, a lot of the people that we have on the show are still in the middle of their journeys. Mm. You've had, by many accounts, some good successes, but you're still working on growing the company. Mm-hmm. So what are your priorities right now? What are you working on? What's top of mind? 
So we have, you alluded to this, but we have a new business division, kind of a, I think you call it a plan B, a business that's come out of our original business that we're quite excited about. And I can, you know, quickly touch on that. We had a bunch of these kind of companies that had similar mindsets or the people running those companies had a similar mindset to our kind of be like business B2C kind of consumer. And they went, oh, you know, like we really like the quality of these t-shirts, the ethics behind it and the price point can we use it to like print our logos and whatever it is? And we had to say no a lot at the beginning. Cause we're like, okay, well like it doesn't help the brand and all that. And then we're like, Oh wait, this is a, might be a big business. We look into it. It's actually a $28 billion business and it's all this stuff. And we're quite excited about it. And we're going after the opportunity now. So I'm spending a lot of time now and we were having a chat before this and I was kind of picking your brain on and how to set up a sales process and kind of think through it. And I mean, what you said to me is like, you just got to roll up your sleeve and do it again, right? Like you got to get into it and figure out what the customer is really liking and what is attractive to the customer, what isn't, why you've won the customers you have and why you haven't. So I'm going to be spending a lot of time doing that. I spend quite a bit of time fundraising. I think you're, you're faced with a choice early on, either be patient. And I think that's a really great way to be. Be patient and know that the business might take 10, 15 years to build. And that's still not that long on the grand scheme of things, or for there is a business reason. And I think this is the advice I would give. If there's a, a reason for the viability of your enterprise to go fast, then you start becoming a bit dependent on outside capital, which provides its own risks or um, kind of presents its own risks. So I guess, yeah, I spend a lot of time fundraising right now because we believe that this one of the spaces that we're going after is going to be one in the next few years. And we need to be, we, we believe that we are the people to do that. So we're kind of running to do that. And then organizational design, I guess. Cool. So something that again, relatively new podcasts, people are in the middle of their journey. This is mm-hmm. going to go out to a lot of alumni, mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. uh, people in the entrepreneurship community. So if there's any requests that you have of the community, it would be right now your fundraising. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, we, we haven't done like big structured announce rounds. We never announce how much we raise. Like I just kind of, I never really, I, I, I get it from a recruiting perspective. So like if you say we've raised $80 million, you might get higher talent that want more security. I get that. Otherwise, I kind of feel like it's an ego contest that I don't really want to be a part of. Um, sometimes, not everyone, but sometimes it can be. So we haven't announced raises and that kind of thing. We actually kind of like don't do these big structured rounds. We kind of like find the right partners that are aligned, both timeline and kind of where the North Star of the company is and share the vision. And we kind of take in the checks as they come in based on alignment rather than like doing these big structured rounds. I'm sure we're going to have to do a, a large structured round in the near future. But yes, we are. We are fundraising. Okay. So if people are interested, they can yeah. get in touch with you that for that reason. Mm-hmm. And then on your, call it, not doing it justice, mm-hmm. but the white labeled side on the mm-hmm. promotional side yeah. of the business, if there are any, it sounds like you're serving yes. primarily companies in the 50 yeah. to 250, exactly. if you're typically using exactly. some like other- Like Gildan or whoever it may be, like low quality that's marked up because of like kind of the supply chain, how's ex- how it exists right now. So, you know- it's often kind of the newer age companies, you know, the digitally native or kind of like those types of companies have so far been our most frequent customers. But yeah, 50 to 250 kind of Toronto, New York, San Fran is how it's been. So, so far. next time you're putting on an event or need company yeah, t-shirts made, exactly. consider exactly ordinary supply, ordinary yeah. supply. So the two companies, they find cotton online, best way to find you guys. Yeah. It's just cotton.com or just at KOTN on Instagram or KOTN.com and, and ordinary, ordinary supply, supply, same thing, ordinary supply.com or at ordinary supply on Instagram. Perfect. And if someone uh, were to reach out and had 
some way to help you uh the best way is just through the website and it'll find its way to you yeah it'll find its way there's a general i think email hello at cotton.com and and those are directed the right way um the other thing is we're hiring on a few different areas both like operations kind of sales and a, a few different places both on the cotton and ordinary supply side so um maybe check out our careers page perfect um, yeah perfect i'd love to do a follow-up episode where we get to talk about you know somebody had heard the podcast and that led to your next handful of customers <laughs> yeah. for ordinary supply yeah. or your next round so. is there anything any advice that you'd give this is my last question any advice you'd give your 20 year old self so often you know the students that are in the school many mm-hmm. of them are mm-hmm. around 20 25 years of age mm-hmm. many of them taking entrepreneurial classes mm-hmm. is there anything that you're thinking oh man i wish i would have learned this earlier mm-hmm. or advice that you would give to rami sitting in those seats so many years ago. I think I'd say perspective is everything and perspective and how you internalize or the filter in which you, you deal with the events is everything. I've learned that things are going to go wrong. Things are going to go well. You have X percent control, whatever that may be, or different people believe different percentages, but whatever that may be. And there's a maximum amount of effort you can put in and everything else is purely perspective. A mistake can be oh my God, this is a disaster. Or it could be like, I'm never going to do that again, which is actually so valuable. Like when we go through and try to figure out which channel works, like I want channels to fail so that I know, and I can peace of mind say that'll never work. I'm done spending 1% brain power there. So I think that perspective is, is really important. The other thing is like focus is really difficult and there's a lot of opportunities that are going to present themselves when you're going through the path and learning how to say no is super, super valuable. It's been really great for us. So you can say heck yeah to the things that actually exactly. make sense. Move cool. the needle. This has been awesome. I hope people get some value out of this session and uh, it's fantastic to have Thanks you so in and tell your story. Thank yeah, you. Thank Appreciate you. it. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.